Hi, this is John Stepling, and this is Aesthetic Resistance, podcast number 30. And uh, with me in New York is Hiroyuki Hamada. Hi, Hiroyuki. Hi, John. And in Sweden, in the frozen north, um, Johan Edebo. Hi. Hi, man. Um, uh and uh, I'm here in frozen Norway. Um, There's been a lot of snow here. Um, enormous snowfall the last 48 hours. And, and we were actually, I had to be dragged. I drove off the road um, in the middle of this, this blizzard and that I was just trying to get home. Oh. Um, and a lot of people did. It's been, it's been extraordinary. Uh, and I hate the winter, I have to say. <laughs> Um, one of the things I hate is is having to drive in it. Anyway, um, it's and it's it's a little bit snowy even tonight. So um, we had hoped that that Corey Morningstar would be able to make this, and it, it I don't think she can, and I know she really wanted to, um, but it is not out of the realm of possibility that that she will still join us. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, I guess. Us three guys will um will have a conversation here. We were talking before about propaganda and uh and I think it's it's a a really germane discussion topic uh for discussion because it's it's something that is so pervasive and and I was watching I, I will introduce it this way. I was watching an interview with this German um, psychiatrist, philosopher, uh, or maybe he's just a psychologist, I'm not sure, uh, Rainer Mosfeld. And um, most of his stuff has not been translated into English, but, but there is an interview or two with him and one YouTube interview um, with, with subtitles. And, uh, and he's very interesting. And, and the, this, German made video that uh, is making the rounds right now, the pandemic of panic um, mentions Mausfeld and, uh, and, and he, he made me realize that one of the things I feel about the current situation, and I have felt this, I think without quite articulating it to myself uh, is, is the, the expansiveness, the enormity of of the propaganda, to the degree that that it's it becomes very hard to formulate a critique, even because you're not you're not sure where to begin. And Mausfeld mentions um, the term neoliberalism. This was one of the examples he used, and he said nobody can define this. It's not doesn't mean anything, and it's it's kind of invisible, and it's invoked as a as a tool of mystification in a sense, because um, there's really kind of nothing there, it, or it can or it's malleable. It can mean a number of different things at different times, and uh, and I think that this is this is very true, and and it's not just that term; it's the entire way that that you know our our 
cognitive architecture is is um, impacted by by this twenty four seven assault uh, of of propaganda. So maybe that's a kind of place to start for you guys. Hmm. So did you have a look at the the book I sent you last time? Uh, this um, propaganda by by the Shakilil. I only I have not. The short answer yeah. is no, not yet. So just let me uh, uh, mention that one one of his main theses of this work is that propaganda, in a sense, is a is an inevitable condition of uh, mass technological society because. In a sense, we, we have such a complex form of society with uh, so many moving parts that we we can't do without some form of propaganda to recreate these these relations of production that that are necessary for the system to work. So, so propaganda is uh, endemic. It's like the air we breathe, in a sense. He argues. Yeah. Well, but and I think that's true. I mean, I think this is. You know, this is part of the issue, and and um, it 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 feels at times as if uh, everything one thinks or says or or that one tries to create a, a, a critique, uh, it always feels co-opted already. One mm. feels that one is enclosed within this this. Um, this machine for neutralization of meaning. Hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 and it becomes very frustrating, I think. I mean, I have noticed, this goes back to what we talked about last time, but I've also noticed, and we've all talked about this off um, among ourselves at different times, this sense of ennui and depression that creeps in on everybody um, because it's the accruing of these, the denial of all of these small pleasures. You know, the, the, the health minister of Norway just yesterday said, well, I think everybody can travel during the winter, um, just not outside of Norway. You know, <laughs> thanks a lot. Um, uh, that, you know, and, and I sat back and I thought, it's extraordinary that that governments are saying this to people. And of course, there's countless other examples. We saw things in Canada with um, people being um, detained in these quarantine hotels um, and charged money. Uh, and and you know, there's there's a whole litany of of um, governmental offenses right now. Um, there was another story about a nursing home in Canada where they took the the door handles off the doors so the residents couldn't get out of their rooms um you know and and there was the do not resuscitate issue um which i also believe was in in germany um for those with learning disabilities and this starts to feel like nazism i mean what it's it's amazing to me um yeah go ahead please is that for real completely preposterous tell me tell me more about it well no it was a story in the guardian actually um so it wasn't like a fringe report from from somebody um so i i can only refer you to that um it's the stuff is always written about in a in a 
very particular kind of vague style. And, mm-hmm. and, and I've noticed also, this goes back directly to the, the, the technology of propaganda, um, that, that, that facts are decontextualized um, and, and fragmented. And this is what mass media does is to constantly fragment and refragment and constantly decontextualize um, facts so that you hear something like that. What, wait a minute, that was a policy. Somebody actually floated this idea of do not resuscitate and it, it happened in some limited way um, for those with learning disability, you know, but, but, it's, but there's very little you can, you don't know enough about it because it's not being reported on in any kind of in any kind of comprehensive manner. You just don't get that kind of reporting, um, so it becomes very hard. And and um, I think that so I, I don't know more to answer your question. I don't know more other than what this Guardian article said. Um, and and I think that that this also leads to you know that people immediately start fearing. Um, being called a conspiracy theorist or, or, you know, oh, you're blaming Bill Gates for everything. No, but, you know, I'm blaming Bill Gates for having um, a disproportionate amount of power and wealth and, and all that implies. I'd, beyond that, I can't say because I don't know. Um, well, but- that also that there's a... Uh, uh, um, if we talk about those things, uh, we actually serve the purpose of um, um, fear mongering. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, <laughs> you know. It, <laughs> no, but uh, that's that's true. But I mean, if we don't say anything, uh, we're tolerating it. Um, if we say something, we are fear mongering. Um, so it, it, we need to step out of this framework and. Uh, talk about um, how um, layered this deception uh, is and uh, the, the system is inherently uh, doing what it does to deceive. Um, um, but when, when you start to do that, that'll be more than a paragraph. Um, you can't tweet about it. You can't right. <laughs> um, no, right. People get upset uh, if you uh, put a long post on Facebook. Um, um, so, uh, you know, right. many, many cycles, uh, you know, uh, that put you in this uh, uh, negative uh, reinforcement, it, you know. Let me just uh, come relate back to, to this uh, book of Elul I mentioned. Uh, he basically talks about, uh, well, at least uh, three main levels of propaganda and he speaks uh, of uh, something you could call background propaganda or pre-propaganda to use his concept. And, and this is like the basic worldview, the general orientation for the person. Some, you, can, you can relate it to the concept of myth. And, and this is like the, the background, the stable anchoring of one's worldview, which then... Uh, these kinds, uh, these things like agitation, propaganda works upon. So, so you have this very stable worldview that is entrenched in people upon which they build their identities and so on, which has the effect that 
any narrative, any real challenges to this uh, this basic worldview, uh, you That's will basically the, the the whole Western uh, the the whole concept of the Western democracy is is that. Yeah, yeah, it's a, one of these. It's it's a part of this background narrative, I would say. And the point is just that you will be very hesitant to accept uh, narratives, uh, claims, facts that are very discordant in relation to this worldview or this background because you are not going to cheaply replace it. It's very costly psychologically and epistemically to like change or restructure this fundamental worldview upon which you build your identity and orient yourself from. Right. Well, I mean, I think that that um, I think you see the um, you know mass media. If you, I mean, take Hollywood, um, and you watch the you know pick any of a dozen or pick all you know primetime dramas coming out of you know the the quite a few now the many um uh channels cables you know the main networks any of them uh and and there are certain things that you are guaranteed to find and they are they are hammered home over and over and over and over and over um and among the primary uh uh sort of you know, inherent natural truths, God-given truths that that Hollywood insists on in their narratives is that the military is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And essentially they're saying that imperialism is a good thing mm -hmm. and that it is the height of individual achievement, you know, that, 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 um, and the backstory for protagonists in, invariably includes a stint in the military it's it's a it's a, a signifier for heroism sacrifice and and integrity um and and achievement in a way um because you will hear constantly someone say oh but have, well, yeah i did two tours in afghanistan that implies a certain level of competence this character will have skills we can trust and rely on this character and this is implied and it's implied directly and it is over and over and over and over and over i mean it's a constant thing now there's there's a dozen other things like that and then we can get into the kind of the secondary um um character attributes that that are insisted upon i mean it's very funny in a way because because hollywood works by like pattern recognition now i think my friend chris rossi said that um you know and it used to be that um if you saw a character walking down the street with a brown paper bag you would see um, the the top of a couple of baguettes sticking out, and that was to signify that he had been shopping. That was the signifier for having gone shopping that you would bought, you know, bread, and that was a recognizable kind of mem or something, and and you would do that. Um, I defy you to find a male character in a Hollywood drama that does not drink his coffee black. 
it is an absolute signifier for masculinity. And, and, and um, if, if you have a protagonist in a cop drama says, yeah, can I have extra milk and sugar, please? I will, I will, you know, do your laundry for a year because I've never, ever once seen that. Um, but these things are, are, you know, encoded and, 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 and they are, they are internalized by people. There are the cues for the audience to, to orient themselves and their own self image, um, which is so much a part of what, what this dynamic is today um, with how much time people spend in front of screens. So, I mean, the point being that, that those are kind of trivial characteristics perhaps, but, um, but they are, they are, you know, and, and they're much more complicated than that. And, and, um, but, but they are very deeply ingrained. And so you, you, in a sense, you can't separate that from uh, why people react to the authority exactly, yeah, apparatus right. saying wear a mask. It would be really interesting to, to hear Hiroyuki's uh, experiences in this regard. Uh, let me just catch on to, to something you said uh, regarding the, the U.S. military and so on, because in my experience, the uh, U.S. Uh, armed forces are, are imbued with this symbolic power and legitimacy and role as the, the great guardian of democracy and so on at a, at a very deep level, even in, he, in Sweden, in, in, my, in my context. Uh, so, and I was wondering whether this is also in some sense the case in Japan with, with an entirely different history. Well, that's a layered uh, yeah, of course. conversation. Uh, um, because um, the whole um, idea of um, U.S. imperialism is somewhat of a taboo um, mm -hmm. among uh, the Japanese people, uh, especially um, if you talk to journalists, activists, uh, it gets tricky because um, you can discuss uh, about domestic policies, uh, uh, domestic corruption, and uh, uh, all those things, but there is definite framework uh, you can't touch. Um, if you go into that territory, uh, people would, sometimes people would just simply tell you that there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. You know, because the United States, the, I mean, Japan is under the uh, protection of uh, the, the U.S. hegemony. And mm. uh, the whole idea of economic prosperity and uh, peace itself is depending mm. on the idea of imperialism. So um, it's really, really, uh, this is a, actually a very good conversation because, um, it, so the peace under that kind of uh, mentality um, mm. uh, entails uh, China as uh, enemy, Russia as enemy, North Korea as, dangerous country and so on and so forth so um you you really can't even get to the basic idea of countries 
I mean, regional uh, entities sharing their resources in harmony for everyone's benefit. You can't even go there because there is big framework of U.S. imperialism, which is invisible. So it's a very, very, um, to me, this is a really, really sad, um, unfortunate situation. And um, um, and the fact that I can't even really talk about it, that's really tricky um, uh, yeah. as well. Well, my experience in Scandinavia, and you know, I, I've been here most of, not entirely, but most of the last 14 years I've been in Norway, um, is that uh, people have a completely unrealistic vision of the United States. And uh, whatever suspicions or, or doubts or, or um, I don't know, uncertainties they may, they may have about the U.S. and the, the imperialist wars of aggression that they undertake. Um, they don't talk about it. They won't talk about it. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and mostly it's, um, it's this sort of strange admiration. Um, and, and you get the feeling that they, there is this, these, my wife says this actually, it's just like, it's like, Norwegians want to be accepted by America, then then they can feel they've been taken more seriously in the world or something. Um, and, uh, you know, so Norway is currently, yeah, they keep inviting more U.S. troops here in the far north for snow training or some shit. Um, and they're building a submarine base and et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah. And I mean, this this myth, this image, this symbolic power has been it's been constructed for almost a hundred years. Are you familiar with this uh, the Reader's Digest uh, little journal magazine thing? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I, I read through a couple of issues from you know? from the forties, fifties. I mean, and it's it's basically. It's very naked propaganda for for the U.S. geopolitical interests many times, and and it's been I mean it's it's really entrenched. I mean, yeah, no, and so here you have, um, uh, I you know if, if we if we sort of bring this back to COVID and the lockdowns and you know all this kind of wear masks, you know, wear two masks, um, and yet. Uh, you know, in, infections, certainly uh, in Norway, there's almost nobody in intensive care anymore um, and, and nobody's dying of, of COVID, uh, you know, very, very low numbers. Um, and yet they're continuing the lockdown. And, yet, and so if you raise this question with people and you say, but, 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 you know, <laughs> but nobody's dying, guys. And, and you know, we, we still can't travel anywhere. We still can't do the, um, they recognize there is, there is a contradiction in all of this. It's mm -hmm. not as if they're not aware of it, but they can't process that contradiction um, because of what, what you just said a moment ago yeah. about this, this, um, this, this profoundly embedded and, and very expansive um, uh, framework for, for uh, looking at the world. And part of this is, is the erasure of, of history. 
I mean, this is, of course, an obvious thing to say, but um, but it but it's absolutely true. Well, and also uh, with COVID, um, uh, I think there is another dimension to it. It's different from uh, uh, war on drugs, war on terror. Um, those things are uh, aimed at particular segments of uh, our population or others, simply uh, people in other countries or people who uh, speak foreign language on uh, airplanes being suspicious and so on and so forth. Um, but with uh, this virus thing, the uh, enemies um, could be us. The targets are um, ourselves, uh, family members, uh, friends, and uh, I think there is psychology of um, um, bigger uh, stake, um, bigger cognitive dissonance. Uh, people, people can admit that they would target us. I think that's uh, one of the elements uh, um, that's uh working here uh sort of how do you mean uh, like there's an element of, of the fear for one's own safety and these things well i mean people you know it, um like i i wrote about this uh uh on a social media post recently um uh, uh th there is um uh, there has been a big uh momentum to go against uh, racism and uh, even uh, war uh, to a certain extent. But um, uh, when it comes to uh, actual uh, situation, uh, we also hear um, uh, white people getting beaten up by police officers and they, you, you see them screaming that they are white uh, you know, they shouldn't be get beaten up. They are not the target. But with COVID, you know, we are the target. So this this uh, this uh, makes it harder for uh, the majority of the population to admit that uh, this is actually happening. Uh, it, it you know um, it it gives um, a bigger sense of cognitive dissonance. I think. Yeah. And you, you also have this, this immense symbolic authority of science behind, behind the, this narrative. And, and that's really something else. I mean, science has a, a really central symbolic role epistemologically with regard to truth, with, with regard to authority and knowledge and everything. So you don't go up against science, really. You, you don't do that. Yeah, well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned that because that's. I think that's a. It, it's something I've thought a lot about recently. In fact, is the um, is almost cultic worship and and a and a huge defensiveness in people. They're very defended about um, whatever it is exactly they imagine in quotation marks science to be. Um, and and the idea of the expert. I mean, there's an extension there too that that somebody is and becomes an expert and you must trust mm. the expert uh and and you know, i always think of wittgenstein when i start having these conversations because you know he would ask what do you mean by trust um 
and you know it is it is exactly the point is that that language has been um drained of meaning in a, in a lot of contexts neoliberalism being one example but but we could find a dozen other a hundred other words that that no longer um are are it, it would be no longer very easy to to define them for people and and expert is one and science is one um and and it is it is very hard to try to tell people but that science is profit motivated just like everything else in capital people um arrive at uh, studies and conclusions and and they construct their computer models based on what they imagine will be profitable for them um, and it gets you know more complex than that probably but but there is science is not some neutral you know um, realm of of pure thought and research <clears throat> I mean almost no research. Uh, exists that is not funded by corporations or the military almost none so you know the, the the way in which the propaganda around covid and for that matter the great reset um the way it is constructed is is to um utilize these these um often very empty terms but i mean in hollywood they used to say it's at at in story conferences, if they weren't happy with the script, they'd say, put a clock on it. And it meant, okay, everything is fine with your plot, but it has to happen in 24 hours or the, you know, the bomb goes off, right? Um, and that was putting a clock on it. They do this with, with the propaganda for, for climate change, and they're doing it um, in, in a strange kind of way with the COVID narrative as well. Um, suddenly there's, we have to do something now. There is this manufactured urgency to everything. And um, uh, uh, then there is sort of the, the, if you could make a graph, you would, you would see at the, at the other end is I don't have enough information. We have to act quickly, but what is it I should remember about all the, you know, you, all of these are all um, tactics, strategies from the people that manufacture propaganda to disorient and confuse people and, and create this, this sense of, anxiety and at rock bottom fear i'm i'm i find it breathtaking how afraid people are of covid and a crucial um, thing, people crucial who are thing, you know 27 years old and perfectly healthy why are you afraid hmm. yeah but an, an insidious thing i think is that people are rational in accepting uh, I mean, uh, th this narrative, any narrative that uh, because of this, uh, this background propaganda, this main narrative, this mythology and so on, you are rational in, uh, in rejecting uh, <clears throat> contrasting narratives and facts as long as you don't have completely conclusive evidence that, that uh, some aspect of the background uh, structure is, is false because it's, it's what you know, it's what you've always taken for granted, it's what you have like everyday evidence for its truth. So, so the, the insidious thing is that you're gonna be justified in accepting like 
Goebbels' big lie or something like that, because right. it's right. in the background. Right. No, it's 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 the stuff is deeply ingrained. You know, there's I mean, there's no question um, that that um, an authority in in Western society, certainly in the United States, I, I think in the United States more than than um, in Europe, although Scandinavia and perhaps in particular Norway, um, Norway is a perverse rule following nation. I mean. It, it's extraordinary. We could. I have anecdotes about that, but more than Japan. <laughs> yeah, I think actually more than Japan. Believe it or not, um, um, I went to a movie theater when I first got here, and I don't go to movies in Norway very often. This is very quick, and my wife and I went in, and we, you know, the tickets, your seats are numbered on the ticket, which is weird for me to begin with. And anyway, so I sat down in the middle of the theater, and there were like two other people in among the like 300 seats of this massive cineplex and right as the lights were dimming this other guy came in and he's looking at his ticket and he walks over and he sits down right next to us <laughs> because that was the seat he was given <laughs> you know there were 400 seats or something empty but he but that's not the number he had you know that wouldn't happen in the US i mean that's a very a very norwegian thing but anyway, the 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 um, I started to say that that the 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 respect for authority or the way that authority is processed and and um, internalized in the U.S. has become really perverse, I think, in a way, um, and and it is uh, probably I think the people that that create propaganda are, are perfectly well aware of, of these paradoxes and, and contradictions because, you know, on the one hand, um, the U S has a, has a disproportionate respect for uniforms. Right. Um, I just wrote this in the blog post about the, the, the nostalgia for colonialism and, and the eroticized um, uh, nostalgia for colonialism. I mean, it's partly a kind of, Mandingo redux, but um, uh, it, it's it's you, the, the uniform is eroticized anyway and hugely respected and um, deferred to in in day to day discourse and 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 relations. Um, at the same time that there's enormous distrust and fear, and it's not just a class breakdown. I mean, obviously inner city, you know, the poor, black, brown, any of poor people in America know to fear police uniforms. They're terror, they, you know, they've been terrorized for 150 years. Um, but, it, but it's not just that. There is, um, there are a lot of perverse kind of psychological mechanisms. Um, I saw this in, in my misspent youth um, where I, where I had a lot of dealings with with the authority structure in the criminal justice system. And you would see there was a certain kind of individual who, when arrested, guilty or not, but usually guilty, still wanted the police to like him. Um, you know, it's a it's a Stockholm syndrome thing, but it's also eroticized and it's sadomasochistic. It's it's but it's a very particular thing and it's very recognizable. Um, you can extrapolate from that outward 
um, to to just this the psychological kind of contradictions or conflicts that that people carry within themselves um, about authority and and about who wields authority. Um, who one should listen to in terms of authority. I mean, why does Bill Gates, um, besides, I mean, he buys all this airtime. He's visible all the time. He's everywhere with his fucking pastel cardigans. Um, but who is he? He's a software salesman. I mean, he's not a scientist. He's not a doctor. He's not anything. He's rich. Um, and yet, I think the majority of Americans view him in a, in a, I read a poll that it was actually more like 50, 50, but a, you know, a huge number of people respect him and revere him as, as this, this sort of avuncular uncle um, um, who is, you know, altruistic and benign and, and non-threatening. And part of it is how desexualized he is, I think, but um um, but it's but it's strange. It's I, I have no punchline here. I'm I'm just sort of riffing that that I think it's a it's a very complex dynamic um, in the U.S. in particular, um, Puritan nation that it is. Um, no, also it, also the uh, the the stuff you said about uh, the movie theater uh, uh, where you are is um, um, the contrasty uh, anecdote. Um, against uh, what's going on in the U.S., uh, where the uh, uh, the nature of authoritarianism is uh, rather uh, it has a broad range of framework, but the framework is very very strong. The framework is termed as this democracy, freedom, and so on, and it's really lofty and uh, it's really strong. And as long as you stay in there, you can move around. You can worship things. You can even uh, worship uniform and be criminal and all those things. <laughs> you step out of the framework, you're in big trouble. I think that's yeah. what's going on. I think that's a really good point. I think it's a, that's a really perceptive point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, um, I, I find um, I find the, the 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 way in which the the um, the COVID discourse is is now enclosed within or sort of bracketed by or something the the um, the, the the climate discourse right and and there are there are little separate um, sidebar discussions over population being one, right? Um, that so you see that, that they're becoming somehow intertwined. Pardon? So you see that the, the two narratives are somehow becoming intertwined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 um, you know why do people? You know, you take the Trump phenomenon, right? Um, and this this truly preposterous impeachment trial, um, and and because there was this outsized need to hate Trump, you know, and he played that part, and and it was like snidely whiplash, you know, it was like the evil. We you could see the black mustache he was twirling, even though it wasn't there, um, and and. 
Um, so, so there is this kind of political kabuki being acted out around Trump. And here you have Joe Biden, one of the most immoral and corrupt figures in, in the history of American politics, um, who's also like half senile at this point. Uh, and, and, but people have a need to lavish this kind of affection on him. You know, it's okay now. Uncle Joe's in the driver's seat and everything's going to be fine. Um, and so they need these like kindergarten level narratives to cling to. Um, even though I know that so many of them know better, but, but it doesn't seem to matter somehow. So that, that's and an interesting that point you're making as well, because I, I see the same, uh, like the, this, uh, this gushing over this glorious hero of democracy. Joe Biden by <clears throat> columnists and, and so on in, in major Swedish newspapers. Uh, and it, it's in a sense, I think it has this kind of veneer of rationality, but it's very superficial and all very quickly boils down to, to these, uh, these uh, simple images, these irrational drives and, and all of this. So, so if, you, if you recall the Uh, Neil Postman's book in, in, from the 1980s, so this um, amusing ourselves to death or something like that. One of his major points was that the the technological structure of the media kind of eroded our capacity for rational and critical thought in a very fundamental sense. And I think yeah. this is an aspect of uh, the success of temporary propaganda that we we have no real tools with which to question and undermine it because we we aren't like trained in in critical thinking and in in rational discourse if we ever were but i i think it's it's worse now than it has ever been well i mean with the uh uh the political figures especially uh Uh, uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, going back to the uh, uh, this background of uh, uh, the myth and the uh, propaganda worldview, um, the, the the whole premise of the um, the United States of America is that it's a country of democracy, the country of freedom, the country of justice, and it is. No matter what people say, it, that's what it is. Uh, the president of the United States should not go out and be racist, colonialist, and blatantly doing those things um, because that's not what it is. So uh, he somehow stepped out of this, uh, the, the uh, court of silence, Um, uh, you know, the, and people sense that, you know, this is not good. This is not us. He's not my president, even though, you know, Biden is a war criminal, you know, imperialist and all that. Um, so, right. no, but, th but this is absolutely true. I mean, it was, it was, it was a, it's simply a question of style and that people were offended by Trump because they expected a certain kind of person, a certain kind of presentation of self, um, to, to be the president, you know, the, Trump was bad casting and, you know, you go back, Obama was like perfect casting. Right. Um, and, and Biden is, yeah, well, he'll do you know, in juxtaposition to Trump, he'll do, that's okay. 
Um, and and um, it, it, it's entirely, but you're right. I mean, Trump was offensive to people, you know. I mean, look, he was a terrible person and he was a racist and he, he was incompetent and he failed to appoint people to critical jobs. And the nuts and bolts machinery of government did did sort of grind to a halt under him in some ways, but but he did far less in terms of foreign policy than 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 Clinton or Bush or Obama, um, and I'm sure or Biden soon, um, in in terms of murdering foreign people. Um, so it's yeah, it's a, it, it's a it's a style over substance question. But I think the the what what Johan just said is is really interesting that that the erosion of of critical tools, right? Um, to to think about things and and you think about like the anti communism that has driven U.S. propaganda, government propaganda for a hundred years, um, is mm -hmm. so acute and so internalized in people. And if you mm -hmm. ask most of those people, what do you think communism is? They, I don't think they could tell you what it is. Um, it's just something bad. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, that, and, and it's something to fear. Uh, but, but this also goes back, this also ties into, Johanty, with your, your comments about science. And I think that's a, I think this is a really important topic, actually, is, is, um, is how science is perceived and, and this idea of rationality and, and instrumental um, logic or something, instrumental thinking. Um, I mean, the Frankfurt School, of course, came up with this idea of instrumental thought and it was the, the, one of the evil legacies of the enlightenment that it was, it was embedded within that was that, that, that the enlightenment would become its opposite in, in, some measure anyway or some aspect of it um and and i think that that this is this is very true and yet there are contradictions you know because we were talking before we started recording about um this tendency to new age mysticism mm. in people in the west um so if anyone has thoughts on that because i think this i see this daily now there's some resurgence of um the the new age um mm -hmm. stuff that, that that we saw in the in the late 70s early 80s in the u.s is it's like the revanchist um versions new versions of est and reverend moon have have returned somehow i don't know anyway i mean you know this the sense of um unknown and mystery and um, uh, spirituality and all those things uh, are definitely part of um, being human. Um, um, we certainly don't have all the capacities to uh, bridge uh, the, the vast vastness of the universe and uh, us uh, being little creatures stuck on uh, this tiny planet. Um, there is... Um, some sort of this sense of all uh, toward things we can't understand. Um, but this, yeah, like, this is something um, capitalism cannot really commodify. Uh, so it's, I think it's desperately trying to frame it within uh, 
within its imperatives. And well, uh, I think it. I think it's. I think it's. I don't mean to interrupt you. No, um, I think it's. It's. It's the new age stuff drew a lot of energy from anti-war activists and leftists and 60s hippies and disillusioned commune, you know, dwellers and whatnot. Um, the 60s radicals, a, a really disproportionate number became infatuated with new age gurus and, and, and you know, cults and whatnot. And, and it seems now as it kind of returns in some way or other, and it may perhaps never really left. It seems a way to control. It's a, it's a, it's a control mechanism for that sense of awe and the sublime and, and, you know, the spiritual, whatever you term one chooses um, is that that stuff is dangerous on some level, right? I mean, it's disruptive on some level. So there is, it's like a fear driven mechanism. People retreat to these authoritarian um, new age cults of some sort because it provides this air sats structure to their lives i don't know but but there's something really in it a complex that... issue of it, but i think you're putting your finger on something here <clears throat> i mean in in some sense i think we have a i don't see this as a really strong phenomenon right now uh, as of yet but i i recognize what you talk about and i think it's in some sense a reaction to this um, combined power of, of of science technology and capital which which in some sense it was in the in the 70s and 80s, probably a belated response to the technological threat of, of uh, nuclear war in some sense. But what I see in the radical right is also this kind of, so if we, if we, if we consider the radical right in a very broad sense, it's, be, it's becoming like the repository of everything that's challenging to the, to the system because positions that you would describe to the, the radical left 20 years ago are now basically firmly in, in, in the other camp from the perspective of official propaganda. And here you also have this, uh, this uh, uh, approach towards something more spiritual, whether in, a, in the format of organized Christianity or in some more new agey kind of sense. So I think this is a thing, it's a process that's going on, yeah, but, but I'm not sure what to make of it or where it's going, but because, I mean, Western esotericism and, and uh, these ideas, they've been like reappearing intermittently for many, many years, like 150 years or so at least. So it's, right, well, it's and I think, but I, I think that, um... See, that's interesting. I think that the fear we keep talking about with COVID, I see people terrified and there's no logical reason for them to be terrified um, besides the superficial level of, of, of propaganda. But I, th I think a lot of people see through that. Um, but, but, but it's obviously, to me anyway, um, a deeper uh, unidentified fear of existential angst that, that people feel feel in a society of acute alienation and loneliness um, that that's becoming more now enforced isolation uh, but 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 people feel alone 
all the time. They, they, the traditional um, societal structures that that offered support and and um, community are gone. I mean, the destruction of of, of community rather has has been um, profound in in the West. Uh, even something like like the destruction of unions has has caused a lot of that. Um, and and I remember when I was in Poland, just as a sidebar, I would talk to old people who said, oh, yes, you know, we always bitched about communism and we hated to go to those Saturday meetings in the neighborhood and where we go paint somebody's house or we go, you know, build something or repair floors at the community. And they said, now we miss it desperately because now we have nothing to do but sit home and watch television and we're old and our friends are dying and we have nobody to talk to. And that's what they missed yeah. the most. So, you know, they're, really, they're, really they're, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think this is a really, really radical, <clears throat> radical change, a radical loss, which totally devastates the, the brittle and, and fragile structures supporting people existentially in, in a society characterized by profound alienation. And I think we're going to see a, a really strong reaction, a kind of backlash in response to this. And I, I was wondering, Hiroyuki, if you've heard of the, <clears throat> the phenomenon Ejanaika uh, uh, from like the 1860s in Japan. <clears throat> and it's, it's often compared with something called dance mania from, from the European Middle Ages, which was a, a kind of pseudo-religious uh, mania movement kind of thing in the wake of plagues and other other really uh, disruptive uh, situations. So are you familiar with that uh, phenomenon? <laughs> um, uh, right. How do you translate that, Agent I have How? no idea. You, you have no idea. Well, it, no. it's... Um, um, it's like, um, it's okay. It doesn't matter. It, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. it, um, um, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to translate. What could that be? But it's, uh, it's a, it's a desperate expression. It's an explosion of, uh, this, uh, affirmative, uh, uh, energy uh, that's basically not going anywhere. It's just there, just being there, exploding, um, manifesting itself. And people danced and people talked about it. And um, uh, <laughs> but I'm not really familiar with the uh, the background and context of it. But but I I know why you mentioned that. That that's uh, right, right. That's interesting. Well, I think I think that I think that backlash you speak of, I mean, is inevitable and we're probably already seeing it. I think the question is in a in a society so habituated to the screen and I think people's um, intellect is so damaged by this screen habituation, um, which fragments. It's very hard. And I see it in myself. I mean, you know, cohesive thought is perhaps harder than it once was because we've been so conditioned by the internet, by screens, by movies, by everything. Um, and, and, 
uh, and again, I'll mention Jonathan Beller's book, um, Cinematic Motor Production, because it's it's very good um, and touches on this. But I mean, a lot of people have written about it. I've written about it in the blog repeatedly um, that that um, there is some kind of I mean, you know, Guy Debord in in mm. the 70s already was talking about a generalized autism in Western society. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, Deleuze and Guattari, the schizo capitalism and schizophrenia. But I think we are in the autistic age. I think there is a kind of loss of affect and, and, mm. um, and the fact that people are now um, compulsively wearing masks and objecting to it so little. There's so little silence and, and resistance to the mask, um, which hides emotions. I saw an article the other day about misreading people's expressions who are wearing masks, right? Mm -hmm. And especially for children, misreading the expressions of adults who are wearing masks. And it's causing this kind of like, um, acute anxiety in children <clears throat> because they're getting things wrong and they can't trust their their responses to adult figures of authority um, but I think I think that kind of what what could, what Debor meant by by generalized autism that that kind of um, loss of the um, loss of the ability to read, um, people's tones of voice. And of course, now we get robotic voices half the time, wherever we go. Um, the inability to read people, the facial expressions, um, uh, the, the inability on social media, and I think this is built into social media, the inability to read sarcasm or, or irony or something in any, in any um, degree of sufficient uh, it, it's a very crude medium and, and I, I, you know, it feeds aggression because I think everybody's becoming increasingly mm -hmm. paranoid actually. Um, mm -hmm. But I think, I think, but in a sense, uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Thank you, sir. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but in a sense, I think, I think we're living in, in some kind of extreme version of, of uh, the board's uh, like dystopia because I mean, his basic idea was that representation replaces reality. In a, in a concrete sense, and in, in this digital isolation, that's exactly what's going on. I mean, we, we only have representation, whereas a year ago, we at least had some kind of a concrete, tangible, social, physical existence. But this is, I mean, this is gone in a sense. Right. So this is, uh, we should go to Debor and, and, and like, explore his, his ideas to see what kind of society we're living in now, because it, it matches. Well, you perfectly. should. I, you, you probably have, but his his the book he wrote in the eighties, I think it was, hmm? maybe the late seventies. His comments on the society hmm. and the spectacle hmm. is the title. It was hmm. his follow up book, and in some ways, it's it's more profound than the original because it's an extraordinary book, yeah. um, and incredibly prescient. Um, but yeah, no, that is all we have, right? And and this is this is what we're talking about. I mean, this goes back to gerrymander even, but, but other television critics and psychologists from 30, 40 years ago were already talking about the phenomenon such as people leaving their televisions on 24 hours a day so that they had a companion 
in the house um and that his house didn't feel empty if there was a you know nattering voice going on it didn't matter in the least what was on that television um and and you know it's interesting because radio doesn't do the quite the same thing even if the yeah. attention is very passive and there's that's a whole perhaps separate discussion i don't know um but but that's how we, now is the it's the smartphone right i mean yeah. this is this is like an extension of of this is your closest family member is yeah and, and the smartphone i mean it, it's it's more an extension it, it's it's video that people are are, are made, making use of it for it's not i mean you don't read ebooks on, on your smartphone generally but i, I was thinking my, my sister-in-law who, <clears throat> who first introduced me to Corey's work she listened to our, our last discussion and i mean her, her main uh, point was that we, she was interested in, in hearing about what, what our ds as pertaining to, to possible forms of resistance was and uh, I think it would be interesting to, to, to at least touch upon that topic. And uh, if I may connect uh, further to this uh, dancing mania as a kind of popular rebellion resistance and so on, I was wondering if you, Hiroyuki, uh, know anything about these um, 80s Japanese movies uh, I think they're called Burst City and Death Powder. Uh, have you heard of them? No. no. Okay, they're basically iconic, uh, surrealistic, dadaistic, punk, uh, rock uh, movies of some kind. But they, they embodied this, this same form of the same sense of, of a, a radical experimental rebellion that uh, the... What, what are the, can, you, can you spell it again? I'm going to look it up. I can write it in the yeah. chat. I think you well, will have a bit of it. Yeah. I I mean just a quick a quick response to to um, this idea of what what resistance means. I mean, I, you know, I I called this this whole enterprise aesthetic resistance right that started on soundcloud and that was the title of my book and and it just seemed like a good term um but but it is because i believe i believe very strongly that that aesthetics and art um matter a great deal crucially and and there's an enormous hostility to fine art and and to to um, uh, to culture in general, I think in Western societies today, and it's growing, and and um, people love nothing better than to debunk in their mind anyway modern art, and oh, that's a Rothko. I could do that, right? Um, and part of it is a fetishized um, overvaluation of. Um, of, of expertise of, of virtuosity uh, in and so that the, the the terms needed to appreciate um, a Rothko or whoever um, uh, is is uh, is is felt as accusatory 
is intimidating and and people have a very defensive very negative reaction but i think that the loss of aesthetics even very small simple aesthetic pleasures um somebody once said about paris and and france in general that they had mastered um um the aesthetics of of daily life the small things going to the cafe and the bistro the you know to it and it's true. I mean, having lived there for a year and a half, I mean, that's one of the things I felt was that, that it wasn't ugly. The world around me was not ugly when I was in Paris. Um, when I live in, in New York, everything was ugly. Los Angeles, to some degree, increasingly ugly. Um, London, ugly, ugly, ugly. Um, and, and this affects us, you know, Corey said last time, this, this horrible feeling of ugliness, um, confronting one all the time. So I think that resistance as odd as it sounds. Um, one aspect is, is a, is a, an aesthetic education. Um, and another aspect of that is, is to uh, rectify the loss of language, the meaning of, of language to somehow, um, reintroduce um you know serious um definitions to learn how to speak the language you are born with you know english i mean i'm shocked when i look at the 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 grammar and on, on the new york times all of the i mean the punctuation the grammar the, is is appalling i mean it it but it's shocking i mean you know and the other day the famous was, was um the woman who corrected Ted Cruz, what's her name? She's married to Alan Greenspan. Um, she's some talking head, news anchor, talking head, and I can't think of her name. Anyway, she corrected him because he said, uh, referring to Trump, I believe, you know, like Shakespeare, sound and fury signifying nothing. She said, oh, that's not Shakespeare, that's Faulkner. Now, this is a woman from a, an elite <laughs> Ivy League school. <laughs> And didn't know um, that this that that Faulkner titled his book based on a you know a text from Shakespeare. I, think you're, you're, I knew that when I was ten years old. Okay, um, and and I mean I'm serious. So so that and this is a a woman who's a millionaire is married to Alan Greenspan. Um, you know is a part of the liberal white establishment elite ruling class, um, and is fucking stupid. So, you know, the, the, this is part of resistance is learning. Um, I think the other thing is to, is to re, um, reintroduce, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Reintroduce sincerity, reclaim sincerity. I mean, the, we're in like the age of ironic snark that, is compulsive now. It's a fucking mental disorder. People mm. can't speak in anything except snark, mm. um, and and it passes for um, it passes for wit or cleverness or something. I don't even know what it passes for, but but people have a very hard time speaking sincerely and speaking appreciatively of certain things of of culture and art. Um, so if it's in the least unpopular, because boy, this, 
yeah anyway yeah go ahead i'm rambling yeah, okay. on i have a lag of about like two seconds so i'm not sure it doesn't register no no i know i have the same lag. people probably think we're um yeah drunk but in classical I'd... philosophy anyway the, the aesthetics and, and rationality and uh, morality ethics were intimately linked i mean they were in a sense they were the same thing you talk about the 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 translatability or the transmutability of the transcendental and what you're speaking of then is the good and the true and the beautiful are the same thing and i completely agree with your sentiment here and i think i understand why why you connect these these uh, issues that might seem separate but but what you're talking about is like a, a multi-generational enterprise which which seems very daunting to say <laughs> the least so i mean and and I read this article on Off Guardian this this morning. I think where the author kind of naively suggested, oh, we're we're in some kind of information war, and we need to frame it like that and try to fight this. But I mean, you, you can't go up against this this massive historically unprecedented propaganda machine and and try to to like beat it with its own weapons. You, so so th that's why I think this notion of, of subversive aesthetic resistance is very appealing to me because because i think it offers kind of a another way of of undermining this uh, this uh, horrible machine we're in in a sense well you know it's it's um michael silverblatt who is the bookworm on kpfk and michael and i have a lot of disagreements but but he's an old friend and he's had me on the show a couple of times anyway I, he does book reviews, right? And he's done it for 25 years and he's become quite popular. Um, and I asked him last time I was in Los Angeles, I said, does it surprise you how popular you've become because you're like reviewing um, serious fiction and, and poetry? And he said, yeah, it is, it is surprising. And it did surprise me. I said, do you have an explanation? He said, I think, um, he said, because obviously most of my viewers can't possibly have read all of the books I'm reviewing or be familiar with the references. He said, but I think there is a, a hunger for the sound of wisdom. And, yeah. and I thought that was really good. And I think it's really true. I think it's very unfamiliar. I, I was listening to Robert, a YouTube video of Robert Bly reading Neruda the other day. A couple of weeks ago, actually, and and Bly is Bly is wonderful, and you know, he, I, I met him a couple of times. He's like the shining light in the room, and and he's he's almost yeah saintly. But anyway, um, he listened to him reading Neruda because it is a sound that you don't hear from many poets. Um, it's it's hard to explain. I don't even know if I can explain it, but it's it's um it's he has taken it it is neither elitist at all nor is it crudely sort of um dumbed down in any way whatsoever it's that he takes he takes poetry as as of life and death importance he takes it so seriously and and i think that's an aspect of this you know i mean i have said this for for years and it probably accounts for the fact that I can't get plays produced anymore. But um, I think seriousness intimidates people. 
and and I think if you are serious about what you're doing, if you are serious about art or philosophy, um, it's intimidating, and and people are extraordinarily defensive um, because because they don't know it themselves, and it again it feels it feels accusatory somehow, yeah. and um, and that's intolerable in in this day and age somehow. Um, I mean, it, it, it's very hard. It's very hard for people to accept being students. Somebody said this, man, wish I could remember who they said there is such beauty in being able to be a student. Um, I feel that in chess, you know, I, I studied for a while with this guy who was a Polish um, international master, almost grandmaster, um, old, old guy. And I, it was, I thought it was such a gift. You know, I was so happy that he granted me, you know, the status of being a student. I just sat there and listened to him. It doesn't matter what the topic is, you know, mm -hmm. Um, but but to apprentice yourself in some way to somebody who knows more than you do about virtually anything. Um, Gary Snyder said that once. They said, what, you, what's your advice to a young poet? And Snyder said, go out and learn to do something really well, not poetry, you know, do mm -hmm. anything, become a cabinet maker, a fisherman, anything. Go out and learn to do something really well, then start writing poetry. Um and I think there's a, there's a, you know, there's, that's a Zen cone for you. Hmm. Um, I think there's a real truth in that. I, but I, but I think these kinds of things, and I'm really free associating here, but I think these kinds of things are, are part of what aesthetic resistance should be. I think it's the top, it, uh, what you're saying is totally uh, within the topic we're talking about. We're talking about this framework that um, put people into capitalist, um, uh, hierarchy and uh, when all the words and language is dominated by the mechanism we when we make stories the stories become about that instead of inherent human condition uh, real existential question that's related to uh, who we are as human beings and in relation to nature and all that. Uh, it becomes about uh, how we are in this uh, society. And um, um, like yesterday I was watching a movie with my wife about the, uh, uh, so I, I, I was looking at this uh, 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 Facebook post about movies um, uh, movies from 50s, uh, uh, some movies about the uh, uh, McCarthy uh, era. And oh, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, the, and uh, we, we watched uh, quite a few uh, movies by uh, Joseph Losey. Is that how you pronounce right. it? Yeah, Joseph Losey, sure. And uh, yeah. we are very, very impressed. You know, the, the, there's a sense of. Um, uh, authenticness, authenticity, um, the, the depth that's really uh, resonate uh, to us. And yesterday we saw uh, this movie, The Majestic, uh, the, it's a um, recent Hollywood movie, uh, right. Jim movie, and uh, uh, the difference is profound. It's- uh, Yeah, it is, no, but it, it is, it you is know, so I, profound. Look, yeah. I mean, Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, the, 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 so the no, uh, I told look, I taught at the 
the <laughs> Polish film school. And I know I, I, we have this two second lag thing again. I'm sorry. No, but I remember showing students Bresson the first week and they were like angry. You know, why are you showing us this? Um, and by the end of the first semester, when they had started watching more of this kind of stuff um, in my class, uh, that's all they would watch, you know, were, were Antonioni and Brisson and Dreyer and, and you know, but it takes some exposure to, to recognize the difference you're describing. Well, you know, yeah, but... I mean, it's it's not like you know, uh, it's a pretty simple thing. I mean, with those movies, the older movies, they do talk about uh, profoundness of up against real uh, evilness of um, exploitation and subjugation uh, at the very basic level. But like the movie, the majestic, you, um, it's operating within the capitalist framework. It's it's whitewashing the crime of uh, McCarthyism, and it's upholding the the system uh, we have basically. So, it's, it's a shallowness that's you know profound. It, it's not going deep. You know, it. You know what I mean? It's. Yeah, no, but I do. And I think that this is absolutely true. I mean, we're sort of going to, I think we'll run out of time a little bit here. We're going on, but, but, um, and this is something to talk about next time because, because, and I've written about it and it's a, it's a huge topic. Um, you know, those Losey films, the, his two most famous or three most famous um, were written by Pinter. Pinter did the screenplay for the servant and accident. Um, and, and the go-between go yeah and and so you know that's one part of it um and uh you know that sort of i mean you, films changed in the 80s late 70s there there was a watershed moment i don't want to repeat myself because people know this riff it was it was when friedkin's film sorcerer which is a brilliant film um opened the same week as star wars and Star Wars was a box office hit and Sorcerer was a box office bomb. And that changed Hollywood forever. Uh, and the films, serious cinema, um, the kind of stuff people associate with art house cinema, um, it was gone forever. And we are living in the shadow of, of Star Wars, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but okay, look, I think we'll wrap it up. Um, Let me just because... ask a question to you both. Yes, please, please, please. I mean, so, so I... <laughs> I agree with what you're saying, but how how do you essentially reach people who who are robbed of the critical or, or cognitive tools to to uh, to to um, accept and understand and appreciate this this kind of art? And how, how do I you tell the truth to people if they don't have the critical tools of discerning right. it? I know it's very hard. But the, the the thing about the movie is that uh, it's um the, the, those movies the the hollywood movie the recent ones they don't resonate uh with the uh, actual reality of um imperial structure it, it's it's talking about fictitious world of uh narratives created by the um uh, uh imperial establishment so if you learn what 
we are really facing, what we are living in, uh, that would help, I think, to understand. But one suggestion, one concrete suggestion, if I have any concrete suggestions that are worth anything, one suggestion, because this echoes what Hiroyuki just said, um, is that the, we, we're talking about the, the, the old people in Poland missing the communist workday meetings on Saturdays. Um, people need to start forming groups, whether it's something as prosaic and stupid sounding as a book club. But, you know, I, I read Marx's Capital in a group, a study group of about nine people. It took, we met once a week for a year. And it's the greatest thing I've ever done, I think. Um, but, but I grew up in an environment, I remember the years in New York City, with a group of people that we would meet all the time and talk about books and talk about art and talk about politics and class and all this stuff. People need to start tearing themselves away from the screen um, and meeting with each other. I mean, it's why I think the social distancing and all of these restrictions are so insidious because they are um, tearing away at the foundation of basic human organization of, of right. you know, social relations. And, and that's what people have to reinstitute, get together with a group of people and talk about what you think is missing in your life. Um, because you're absolutely right, I believe, Johan, that there was that article in Off Guardian that I found very disappointing, really, because I thought, this is a silliness. What do you, you know, <laughs> you can't fight that machine, not directly. You have to retreat and start over with a small group of people. But organization is crucial because you also can't do it alone. You can't. And this is a society that is starting to insist people live their lives alone. Um, yeah. And, and that's, that's the real horror of the future being presented is a future of people in absolute solitude. Um, so anyway, okay. Final thoughts and we'll wrap this up. This was very good and really fun guys. Yeah. Thank you, John. Um, and hopefully we'll do it next week and, and Corey will be back. Um, uh, I know she wants to do it. So, all right. Um, cool. This will be up soon um, because Jack Littman is so on the job. My wonder boy uh, <laughs> uh, pal in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, I will send everybody the link. But um, thank you, Johan. Next week again, yeah, we can do it. Yeah, I think to, yeah. we can do a weekly podcast. It would be great. Okay, very good. And we'll um, talk in between. Thank you, Hiroyuki. Thank, thank you, you Johan. So yeah, just me. Let me suggest a topic for the the next. Uh, yes. Event. I, I wanted to say something today regarding what I would call crowdsourced propaganda and how this can relate to and be related to. Deep learning algorithms in practice, and I, if if you would be interested in discussing that, I could prepare something on the topic. Yeah, I re I remember you sent me an email. Where yeah. I would love to talk about this this notion because it's um, it's terrifying. So yeah, let's that's that's a great topic to to begin next week with. Cool. Looking forward. All right, guys, take care, um, and take care. we'll we'll talk soon. Okay. Thank right. you. Bye bye.